You're listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast that features learnings from trailblazers in entrepreneurship and investment. I'm your host, Rihanna Shah, and today on the show, we have Alan Chu, partner at XC Capital. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show, Alan. Maybe to start out, can you tell us about yourself and your very interesting background? Because you're one of those cases that started out as an entrepreneur and as an engineer and have sort of through that moved into the venture capital world. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, I've always been interested in in technology as a kid. Uh, I grew up in Hong Kong and Vancouver, Canada, um, ended up studying electrical and computer engineering at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, and after graduation, jumped into a company called Creo as one of the first software engineers. And I was lucky enough that the company went public about three and a half, four years uh, after I joined and reached a billion dollars at revenue uh, a year later. So it was a phenomenal ride. Learned a ton about what it takes to scale a company. So after that, I decided to go back into an earlier stage company. So I joined uh, a network security startup as their first engineering manager. Now, taking the lessons that I had picked up at Creole and applying to a startup with less than 10 people, no engineering process at the time. And um, so we pushed the first product out. It was a network security product for branch offices, small businesses. But unfortunately, the business never took off. We we're trying to to sell to Europe and Asia, had some early traction, but in the end had to shut down the company after two years. So we'll learn a lot from that experience as well about what not to do. It's definitely uh, a hard experience. Yeah, and, and quite a contrast from compared to the first experience. And um, uh, so after that company, I uh, joined another startup. This one was called Bycast. And we had one customer when I, when I jumped in, and the company had just pivoted away from the streaming media infrastructure space into what would now be called a private storage cloud space. At the time, it wasn't called that. Uh, the timing was about a year before Amazon launched S3, their public storage cloud. This like way of managing data was still fairly new. We had to do a lot of evangelization in the market. Interesting. Um, and um, eventually, we found uh, an initial use case in the medical imaging space. Uh, as it turns out, a lot of hospitals generate medical images that keep increasing. They keep increasing in, in resolution with new um, new modalities that come on the market. But they needed to keep these images for a long time, like for all intents and purposes, like forever. That's how they think about it. Oh wow. And the existing solutions on the market at the time were either too expensive or too slow. So by leveraging our software to help them manage storage, we basically could intelligently place the images on the right tier of storage to meet the, uh, the service level requirements, uh, agreements that the IT teams had needed to deliver onto the radiologists and cardiologists while still keeping the budget somewhat rational and not out of hand. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so that, that was a, a fun experience as well. We ended up scaling the company to about 200 clouds around the world. We were doing, so this is still a Canadian startup, but we're doing about 45% of business in the US, 45% oh, wow. in Europe, and about 10% in, in Asia. Um, and we had IBM, HP selling our product worldwide. In the end, we got acquired by NetApp, which is a global storage uh, data management company based in Sunnyvale. So, and about the same time, I, I got accepted into uh, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And um, after graduation, I became a VC. 
Cool. So it sounds like you've had a lot of really cool experiences when it comes to companies that have ended up working really well and companies that have kind of faltered in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we always hear about sort of the companies that end up doing really well or the companies that succeed. But I'm wondering, what were some things that you learned from the company that you worked with that didn't end up working out? And what was it that finally prompted you and the founders to sort of discontinue working on the company? So, for example, the, the, the network security company that didn't work out. In hindsight, I think we didn't fully understand the ecosystem. We were trying to sell a product into branch offices, for example, mm-hmm. without fully understanding how they made the purchase decisions. Interesting. And as it turns out, branch offices would take the lead from the headquarters. Well, of course, in hindsight, it's obvious. And if headquarters decided had decided to, to buy Cisco products, they would want that branch offices to also use Cisco products to ensure interoperability. Interesting. So even though we, we knew that interoperability with Cisco products was important mm. and we supported Cisco products, yeah. but it's still not the same as buying Cisco products, having that brand stand behind that. Interesting. Um, so even though our solution would cost one-third or one-fifth of the price of Cisco product and that scale when you have a lot of branch offices, it wouldn't matter, but... Still, the assurance of buying from a known brand who would guarantee interoperability, basically guaranteeing the whole end-to-end solution would work, mm-hmm. uh, trumped any sort of cost benefits that we could bring to the table. It sounds like we really need to make sure that we're actually sort of fitting into a specific piece of the entire pipeline to make sure that it is a product that is, is sellable. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, systems thinking is, is crucial here. you got to think mm-hmm. about not just your, your product which is hard because everyone is the center of their own universe. Mm-hmm. But the danger of that is you, you are overly focused on what you are building as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. either your product or your company, without taking the whole system in which your customers and, and users live into account. Yeah, And that will lead to all kinds of blind spots that would trip you up down the road. So it's very important to really think about the whole system and then develop a hypothesis around how you might trigger mm-hmm. change in the system. And go test that theory, test the hypothesis specifically, rather than just diving it headlong, building a product and launching it and and trying to to penetrate market by brute force. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it sounds like you've gathered a lot of insights around product market fit or sort of looking at exactly where your product fits within the within the pipeline. Mm -hmm. What would you say are some of the best practices that you've gathered throughout this that are useful for our listeners? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, but through my experience and also uh, now investing, been investing at Exceed for six years and working with our portfolio companies, by working with our founders, we came up with a, a framework mm-hmm. for uh, thinking through the different areas of, of a product that are crucial for product market fit. And we came up with four areas. You can think of them as kind of uh, the four sides of a square. Hmm. That in, inside the square is your product, and outside the square is the rest of the world, right? And how does your product interact or interfaces with the rest of, rest of the world? Well, the first side is the most obvious one. It's the side that, that's visible to the user. We call, them, we call it a user interface, right? Yeah. And that's what most product people would first would, would start with because that's the most tangible part of your product. Um, but the other three sides are uh, equally, if not more important. The, they are the application interface, right? how your product interfaces with the other products 
or the other applications used by your end users. The data interface, how your product interfaces with the data from the outside world, how it captures data, how it extracts value from data, and how it produces data in what format and how is the data is going to be consumed and by whom. All right, so you've got to think through those issues. And then lastly, which is what I found to be the most often ignored interface, is what I call the buyer interface. How does the buyer interface with your product? What is your pricing model? How are you going to scale your, your pricing? What metric you're going to use? Um, are you going to go with freemium versus free trial? Do you open source? Do you not? All of these decisions impact how your buyer is going to buy your product, which then carries implications for your product itself. Right. For example, just taking the freemium versus free trial decision, whichever way you go is going to force you to then think through what features I'm going to keep in each tier of my product and what hooks I want to build in to bring people from one tier to the next. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. It sounds like these are some things that product officers or folks who are chief product officers really need to be, be thinking about as they're building out their product. And I'm wondering, have you seen entrepreneurs or have you seen companies that have done an especially good job with it? Yes. Um, you can point to uh, basically any company that has successfully scaled their business has done a great job at it. There are uh, different examples for uh, different uh, from different uh, spaces and, and in, in, in different contexts. Uh, I think Salesforce happens to be one that has done a, a very, very good job. Despite its user interface challenges, um, I mean, it a lot of people would say that Salesforce isn't necessarily the, the most, the easiest product to use on the planet. But yeah. despite that, they're like a $10 billion company, right? It's necessary evil. <laughs> I've heard that phrase a lot describing <laughs> Salesforce. But this is, I think that it's worth using them as an example because they have done a really good job in, in embedding themselves into the workflow of, of their customers and, and end users. They've really thought through the value proposition that they deliver. The, the data interface, I mean, the, the data is what that they have captured from their customers is what keeps them in the customer accounts. Yeah, it can't leave. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And the buyer interface, right? they've really thought through that for not just for their own mainline CRM product, but for all the other products. And you will find that they have different pricing models for different products. They've really thought through what pricing model makes the most sense for the product that they're selling. And they're really good in aligning the product discovery journey with that individual product and then upselling you from the perhaps the lowest tier that you have just signed up to try to the successively more expensive tiers. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. Um, so to re rewind a little bit, mm -hmm. to thinking more about sort of the, the really early stages of, of product building and thinking about it. So right now I'm taking a, a class at the GSB called Startup Garage where we're essentially going through this process of doing lots and lots and lots of user interviews mm -hmm. and then eventually creating almost like a, a paper prototype that that's built with using zero lines of code. So it's really just a paper prototype and walking people through the various processes. So thinking about that, what would you say should be sort of the first steps that founders should think about as they're trying to, to build their product? It's not about your product. It's about whose needs matter the most. At the end of the day, you got to do something useful for somebody. You got to create value such that you could capture value. And so, step one is who am I serving and what's the job to be done? So, 
whose needs matter the most. That really drives everything else. Uh, taking a product-centric approach is, is very challenging because you, you are then fishing in a world that offers infinite possibilities. Like yeah. to, who do you sell to? Who do you serve? And um, you can keep pivoting from one set of customers to, to the next with the same product until the end of the world and not find a, a market. So really having a definitive view on who my end users are, who my end customers are, and what are the specific needs I'm serving yeah. is, is critical. Interesting. So it almost sounds like the product is, is secondary to figuring out who it is that you're actually creating the value for. Yes. Interesting. What should people be thinking about as they're thinking about raising their first round of funding when it comes to having somewhat of their product built out? Raising the first round of the, of the funding... So at XSEED, we look at three areas of risk Mm -hmm. when we look at any opportunity that comes through the door. Um, The first one is technology risk. Mm -hmm. How hard is it to build this technology? Will it work? Are they validating the laws of physics or not? (laughs) Yeah. Now, in in most cases, I mean, unless they're really doing something that violates the laws of physics, we're Mm -hmm. actually pretty happy about taking on technology risk because we believe that smart engineers can solve these problems. And if they could solve these technical problems, it actually creates a barrier to entry. Interesting. Um, So so that's the first area. The second area is execution risk. Um, And under that category, we look at founder market fit are these the right founders for that market are they the best people to go solve this problem are they authentic do they what do they know about the industry the competitive landscape the value chain so all around founder market fit and then we also look at the whole team is the team complete do they have all the skill sets and experience necessary to build this business um if they have an incomplete team, but we see a path to helping them fill those gaps, either through our network or they've already identified folks in their networks that they could pull in to fill out and complete that team, we're okay taking on that risk because that's mm-hmm. a, a risk that could be mitigated. It's manageable. You can do something about it. Yeah. The third risk is the most challenging one, which is market risk. Hmm. Are there going to be customers at the end of the day? Um, and if there are, will they pay what you expect them to pay? Yeah. Definitely. That's 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 always the toughest part. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And 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 it's it's an area that you have the least control over. Right. Because if if customers don't want to pay, you can't force them to pay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but what you can do is to find a different set of customers. So so that that's called a pivot. So what we would love to see be validation to mitigate that kind of risk. Now, validation could come in many different forms. The most straightforward form would be actual customers paying customers. Um, but for a company that's raising their first round, that may or may not be available. Right? If they have been able to bootstrap the venture for a while or use the personal funding or money from family and friends to get to the point where they have some early revenues, that's awesome. But failing that, if you tell us that you've spoken with dozens of customers and these are the interview notes and or we have spent 15 years in this industry and we've seen this problem come up over and over again and these are the reasons why the incumbents are not addressing these problems for structural reasons and it makes sense for us to create a new company to go uh, solve these problems and and by the way uh, based on our understanding we think customers are willing to pay x right so these detailed in-depth customer interviews and customer understandings 
could overcome the lack of revenue traction to convince us that there is enough evidence, at least at this stage of the company, to the best of the founders' abilities, for us to jump in and and take the risk. Yeah, definitely. And among the entrepreneurs you talk to, they may not necessarily end up being the ones that you end up funding. But among the entrepreneurs you talk to, what percentage would you say are folks who sort of come in with that? already revenue and traction versus folks who come in with these very detailed user interviews and notes and industry experience? I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but um, I, th- I think we see a fairly balanced mix. I would have to say that over the last six years, we're probably seeing more and more entrepreneurs showing up with revenue traction already, which is impressive because we tend to be the first institutional investment into a company, hmm. which means the companies that pitch us, they have either not raised any capital at all or have raised uh, very little from family, friends, and angels. Yeah. Yes, they are able to get the business to anywhere between $10,000 monthly recurring revenue to 50, 60K MRR, uh, which is no small feat. Yeah, no, yeah. that sounds, uh, yeah, that definitely sounds very It just seems like entrepreneurs keep getting better and better. <laughs> Yeah, or it also seems like there's some amount of uh, easy accessibility when it comes to reaching customers or when it comes to being able to to get to market just through Google ads and Facebook ads and being able to throw it out there and see whether or not their customers are Yeah, the cost of distribution has, has fallen. Yeah, yeah definitely. It mm-hmm. seems like the, the marketing barrier to entry has been decreasing in the, in mm-hmm. the last few years. Mm-hmm. So one of the things when it comes to folks' first rounds of funding is that when entrepreneurs are just starting out, they're not always thinking about who they're really bringing on board, but it's so, so important to think about who your initial investors are because they're kind of going to determine the direction that the company's going to move in. What would you say is your advice around creating a syndicate or creating that first group of investors who are going to be your board and who are going to provide you all of this advice that you need early on? That That's a great question. Um, for for first-time entrepreneurs, I think it's, it's very tempting to just take any capital offered to you because you uh, before you, you received the first offer, you must have heard dozens or sometimes hundreds of no's and suddenly someone is saying yes. And you're like, why would I not jump at the opportunity, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, it's only human nature. And, and if that's your only chance at getting capital to build your business, yes, maybe the answer is yes. But before you say yes, do pause and think about, all right, is this the right kind of investor for me as a founder and for 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 our company as a business, right? You really want to think strategically about the types of investors you surround yourself with. Um, so to do that, uh, I would encourage first-time entrepreneurs to think about what assets they already have, things that they already know, and try to complement the founding team with investors that bring in uh, knowledge, expertise, and connections that that the founding team might not have. Right? Think about investors that could supercharge you investors that would give you an unfair advantage and also investors that could potentially invest in a competing company but if you get them committed to you and write a big enough check into your company that would prevent them from investing in a competing company and if these investors are rare and you get to lock up a substantial portion of them that alone gives you an unfair competitive advantage as you go out to the market you start generating some early successes you will attract competitors and when they try to look for investment and strategic investors and find that you've already got them locked up that gives you a huge uh, leg up 
Yeah, that's great. I think the idea of, of thinking about dumb capital versus smart capital is so important because not all money is the same because it's really the investors who are coming in with the connections and the investors who can put you in put you through the right doors is the is the most important part of this it seems. Right. And and, and just keep in mind there's no one right answer, but you want to think about your investor base or syndicate holistically. Uh, a base that is complementary to you. So for example, if you're a first-time CEO, if I were in your position, I would prefer to have an experienced CEO turned investor as as my partner than someone who's never been a CEO before, who, who while could be very smart and, and, and bring other value to the table, but like I really won't, would want to have someone who's been in my shoes but been very successful to coach me and mentor me. Right, and and if and if that person also happens to be an investor who owns a significant chunk of the company, the incentives are now aligned for that person to spend a lot of time with me, like, yeah. to help make me successful. Yeah, I love that. It's almost like uh, who do you want on the on the sidelines as you're running your race? Who are your cheerleaders? Yeah, and you and you yeah you want to you want to gain every single competitive advantage that you you can possibly have. Yeah, it's it's hard enough to build a company as yes. it is. Awesome. This has been really interesting. And maybe to close out, I would love to ask you, do you have some advice for folks who are first-time founders or folks who are just starting out on their entrepreneurial journeys? I'll come back to what I said earlier in the podcast. Um, Just remember that everyone is the center of their own universe. Your users are, your buyers are, your detractors in the accounts that you're trying to sell into, they are as well. They're not evil. They're just the center of their own universe. They're maximizing, optimizing for their own set of incentives. Just keep that in mind. Uh, I found that in my experience, that little reminder has been really helpful in many areas from making product decisions to selling to crafting a marketing message to managing the internal politics of a company I'm trying to sell into. Uh, it's always helpful to remember that every every person is the center of their own universe. That's great. Those are really great uh, and wise parting words. Thank you so much for talking with us, Alan. Very happy to be here today. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. You can follow Alan on Twitter or LinkedIn at Alan Chu. For learnings from our conversations with our awesome guests featured on Venture Vignettes, check me out on Medium or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and looking forward to seeing you next week.